Let's Encrypt hits the big time, Outlook password leaks, and an important VMware patch, all that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. It's the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Doug. That's Paul. And Paul, we rarely ever make mistakes in real life or professional life, but we made a mistake last week by even considering the idea that maybe iOS 12 was dead. No, it was not dead, Doug. Merely resting. It's alive. (laughs) I don't think we made a mistake. You just said, can we call time on it yet? Yeah. Because we, we were as puzzled as anyone, and we erred on the side of caution. And my smashed up phone from the bike crash got the update very quickly. And it is like a a slightly later retrofit of those Pegasus slash NSO group slash Citizen Lab slash WebKit zero day bugs, plus a third zero day bug that appears to apply to iOS 12 only, not to iOS 14 slash 15. And by the way, It looks as though, because that's some kind of historical kernel bug, it's also in Catalina, but not in Big Sur. So yes, still alive. Great. Well, just a little housekeeping, and you can uh, read that article. It's called Still Alive, iOS 12 Gets Three Zero-Day Security Patches Update Now, and you can see Paul's busted-up phone. We're glad he's okay. We'd like to start the show with a fun fact, and I have a fun fact that will tie into our This Week in Tech History story, but the fun (laughs) fact for this week is that if you thought your home internet was fast, or if you wanted confirmation that it's slow, Japan recently set the internet speed world record with a 319 terabit per second data transfer over fiber optic cabling measuring 3,000 kilometers, or about 1,900 miles in length. That is fast enough to download 57,000 full-length movies in less than a second. Yeah, but you can't get that to your house, can you? I don't think so. And if you could... There wouldn't be one of those to go round for everyone in your apartment block. And if there are 57,000 other people in your apartment block, you'd only be getting one movie a second. Exactly. So, sorry, everyone. But just run me the number by me again, Doug. 319 terabit per second data transfer. On one fibre. Yeah, I have one gigabit per second, which I I consider very fast for where I am, and that's not even close. 319 terabits, and it's 2021. And was it just last week we were talking about mobile phones we have known in the 21st century, where I was saying, well, it was only Edge, so it was a bit slow. (laughs) Yep. So stick around for uh, This Week in Tech History later in the show, and we'll talk about more of this uh, fascinating internet technology. But first, let's talk about internet technology with Let's Encrypt, (laughs) who uh, showed everyone way back when that web encryption actually wasn't all that hard or expensive. And now something's happened, but in a good way. Yes, it relates to a root certificate authority web certificate signing key expiring. This happens all the time. Firefox, for example, has more than, I think, 140 different root certificate authorities in its default list. So why would we get excited just because one of those is expiring at 3 p.m. UK time on the 30th of September? 
And the answer is that this is the signing key, the digital signature on somebody else's web certificate key that kind of helped to kickstart the whole Let's Encrypt revolution. Now, most of our listeners, I'm sure, know or have experienced Let's Encrypt at some point. They weren't the first organization to try and make web certificates, TLS or HTTPS certificates, available for free, but they were one of the first and maybe the most successful, you could say, in making it work. Because the problem is when you come along and say, hey, I want to be a certificate authority and I want to do it in a whole new different way. I want to make it easy to automate. I want to have short stay certificates. They only last for three months. I want to make it easy for anybody to do this. It's going to cost them dollar zero. Is that to join the club, you basically have to get somebody else to vouch for you first. And it's like that age old problem of you can't get a job without the requisite experience and you can't get the experience without the requisite job. And it just so happens that the signing key that was used to sign Let's Encrypt's root certificate that was used to sign the certificates ultimately that it created for you for your website automatically and free, that's the one that's about to expire and very little on the internet, at least among well-thinking app developers, should break because Let's Encrypt's own root certificate authority signing key is now by and large trusted by pretty much all browsers and any decently maintained app anywhere in the world. And I thought that was a milestone worth mentioning because Let's Encrypt started this whole thing in 2014. The key that I'm talking about is about to expire that belongs to a, a company called Identrust. They signed Let's Encrypt's signing key in, I think, 2015. And yet it's six years on and some billion certificates issued by Let's Encrypt later before we got to the point where we can actually drop the past and move on with the future. And that's a good reminder that trust in cryptographic circles does take a long time to build up. It's meant to be something that you earn and that, sadly, can easily and quickly be lost. And it's interesting if we examine the backstory a little bit, Part of the reason this all came about is around 2010, and people were saying, well, let's, we should start encrypting these websites. And then websites would say, that's eh, too hard. It's too expensive. Let's just encrypt yeah. the login process. Many sites, including mainstream sites that you would have hoped would do better, would offer you turn on encryption for the, for the important bits, like when I'm putting in my credit card or when I'm typing in my password. But for the rest of the time, while I'm uploading posts to my social networking account that I don't intend to be public, only semi-public, they're only going to say to my friends, when I'm sending packets that contain my session authentication token, we spoke about those last week, whilst it's not quite as valuable as my password, is enough to get you in for this session. Oh, we don't need to encrypt that. It'll just be a hassle. What were we thinking? And we have a, a Firefox extension called Firesheep to, th to thank for kind of uh, 
pointing out how silly it was to not encrypt an entire site. I remember yes. using this in 2010. I was a tech blogger. I was not walking around with Kali Linux or what, you know, I was not a hacker by any means, but I remember having to write an article about this and just firing it up in Firefox inside a coffee shop and being like, oh my God, I can see almost everything. This is crazy. Yes. I think it was the fact that Firesheet made it so easy to do this it was a, a plugin that interfaced between the Firefox browser and uh, network packet capture tool that it installed, the plugin installed, and it would read your network, sniff out your network traffic, and it would look for sessions that it thought belonged to things like, say, Facebook and Twitter, where the person doing those interactions had already gone through the, hey, this one page is secure where you put in your password. And as you say, not only would it show you all the unencrypted stuff neatly laid out using the browser to make it all visually cool. Oh, look, Doug said this, Duck said that. Because it could sniff out those authentication tokens, it would let anybody go, I want to join this conversation, and I'm going to join as Doug or Duck or whoever it is. As evil as that sounds, the motivation was a good one. It was kind of to shake the industry by the tail a little bit and say, this is not good enough. This idea of HTTPS everywhere, it's not a money-grabbing exercise. It's not complexity for the sake of complexity. If you encrypt everything, you don't have to worry that the things you didn't encrypt include some of the important stuff you forgot about, like everything you're reading and saying online. Yeah. Got a bit carried away there, Doug. Yeah. So before... Let's encrypt. These deep pocketed companies could say, okay, we're going to encrypt everything. But say, like nonprofits and smaller sites, as you write in the article, couldn't just say, you know, we, we got to, we're going to get this certificate and we got to renew it every year. We got to pay all this money. So for Let's Encrypt to come along and make it free and easy and quick, automate it, that was a big boon to the industry in general. I think it was. Whichever service you might be using for this, Let's Encrypt is the one that everyone knows about. It's the one with the billions of certificates issued. And then they did such a good job that they no longer need someone else to vouch for them as far as their certificates are concerned. So that's the big story here now is when this Identrust certificate expires, it's going to be okay because most major browsers now or all current modern and browsers. Operating systems, and all decent apps. Oh, and operating systems. Yes, yes, yes. What I did in the article is I wrote a Lua script that uses OpenSSL to make a TLS connection to a domain of your choice. And what you see these days, if you throw away all your operating system certificates and you just ins you just say, use only this certificate that expires on the 30th of September, then what you will see is that there's a chain of trust that goes through from your website through an intermediate certificate owned by Let's Encrypt, through Let's Encrypt's root certificate to this Identrust root certificate. The, under the name DST root of that's a digital signature trust company. So you see this, this four-step process of verification. That's if you've only got the old data. So if you remove that old certificate and you have no certificates at all, it won't verify. If you then let your operating system do the work, what you should see is that your operating system will get through that three-stage process. It'll say, well, your certificate is vouched for by Let's Encrypt's intermediate certificate, and that's vouched for by Let's Encrypt's root CA certificate. Hey, and by the way, 
hey, we all, we we trust that without any further. We don't need to go any further in the chain. It's certainly a reminder that when you enter into this venture, which is real world cryptography, it is a journey and not a destination. Okay, that is serious security. Let's encrypt gets ready to go it alone in a good way. And let's move it on to uh, this is an Outlook uh, possible password leak. It's tied to its auto discover feature, but we have to ask this pudding. Has it been over-egged, Paul? Well, that was what I was determined to find out because it seems that there is a problem here, and I'll explain it briefly. The first record that someone has brought to my attention of this issue coming up publicly was actually several years ago, back in 2017. And now a company going by the name Guardicore, their researchers have, if you like, rediscovered this. Maybe they aren't aware of the previous history, There definitely is a problem, but whether it affects you or not is hard to say. And it goes like this. With Exchange, magically, when you set up Outlook, it kind of tends to work automatically because of this feature called auto-discover. And in theory, what it's supposed to do is it goes to some well-defined, semi-well-defined places on your network, the Outlook program, that is, and it downloads an XML file that has all the configuration data it needs so that it can then set up your account and get you going. I love auto-discover because it didn't used to exist, and putting in all the server, you used to do have to do the yeah. incoming server, outgoing server, what's the, what port is it on, all this stuff, and it was just a pain in the... And you needed... It was, wasn't it? If you, had, if you worked for a company that had a, a system that was any two degrees off what the normal default setup process was, you had to get IT involved, it was, just a, it was a whole thing. Of course, yeah, the server names had always be things that IT had set up that they never intended people to type in, wouldn't they? Like GB65209. It was never just mail.sophos.com. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> no, something. It was something that made sense to the person who had to administer 400 of these things because uh-huh. it told them which country, which server room, which mm-hmm. rack. <laughs> so at least back in the day, it seems there was this problem that the auto-discover process could go differently depending on which client program you were using. Microsoft has some documentation that explains how to do it in your own code. And it's not like some magic system feature you call it. Just look here, look there. This should give you the information you want. And the theory is that let's say your domain is in, in the article, I, I called it naxec.test, I think. The idea is that Outlook, if you say my email address is duck at naxec.test, then it will first try the domain autodiscover.naxec.test and it'll look in a special directory and all the autodiscover and all the various flavors can be put there. Easy. Maybe you don't want to do that because you don't want to have all these extra subdomains. So the next place it would look supposedly is just naxec.test, the same domain that you're using for your email. So if that's your company email, then that domain belongs to the company. It controls all the DNS records. It presumably controls the web server that goes with the mail domain. It all sounds quite safe. Now, what the Guardicore researchers claim still happens that for at least for some versions of Outlook, I'm guessing older ones, if it still doesn't get a result, then it goes, you know what? I've tried autodiscover.naxec.test. I'll try autodiscover.test. And I'll go up a domain. I'll keep going up until I'm at the top level domain. I can't go any further. And of course, the problem is, if you do that, then in theory, 
the domain you end up trying for the company's auto-discover data could be on a domain that's above and outside and beyond their own mail domain. Would I really want Outlook automatically trying autodiscover.naxec.co.uk, autodiscover.co.uk, which is a domain that somebody else could theoretically buy, and autodiscover.uk, because the UK, perhaps somewhat unusually, it sells top-level domains and it sells second-level domains from the old days when you could only have .co.uk. So in that case I gave, while it's going up a domain, up a domain, up a domain, up a domain, in theory it could be trying two domains that could belong to somebody else. And what the Gardicor guys did is they went out and they actually purchased some of those domains, including, amongst others, autodiscover.uk. And their claim is that over a four-month period, they had hundreds of thousands of inadvertent connections that apparently relate to people somewhere on the internet running Outlook of some version, unfortunately they didn't say how old it was, that obviously didn't get satisfaction from the company's local servers and tried so hard that it ended up bursting up through the ceiling, if you like, and spilling out onto the real internet. And their other claim was that, unfortunately, for some mail clients, presumably older versions of Outlook, if they went back and said, oh, by the way, I see that you're trying to do this properly and using NTLM, so you're using an authentication attempt that has a hash in it, not the raw password. Sorry, I don't support that. Would you mind trying again using HTTP basic authentication, which is where you just have the plain text of the password? <gasps> it's in an HTTPS session, right? So it can't be sniffed out along the way, but it's their server at the other end. So they get yeah. to strip off the encryption, as you know, basic auth. It's just, what is it? Username, colon, password, base64. So it's not encrypted at all. It's just encoded. It's called basic authentication for a reason. Oh, my God. And so it seems that they were able, even in 2021, by registering these domains. And of course, these days, there isn't just one top-level domain per country, plus com, edu, gov, etc. It's not like the good old days. It's the bad new days, isn't it, where there are all these new top-level domains like .google, .online, .country, .whatever. And so there are thousands of the jolly things these days. And so there are potentially, depending on the where your mail domain is, there are potentially very many ways that your auto-discovered data could leak out if you're using the wrong version, and I'm using air quotes again, of Outlook. The problem is, Gardicor wasn't very clear about what the wrong version of Outlook was. And in all my experiments, I just stuck to Outlook 2016. I couldn't provoke this behavior. It tried autodiscover.mydomain. It tried my domain, but it didn't go any further. I couldn't get it to bubble up to, say, .co.uk or .uk or .test or whatever I tried. So it looks as though the risk is kind of mitigated slash minimal, but that doesn't avoid the fact that there do seem to be plenty of people out there who are using email clients or Outlook versions or have network setups that are, if you like, old enough that this data leakage is a problem. Because however much egg they may have put in the pudding, Gardicor did collect all this data that 
nobody really knew was going out. Yeah. And wasn't supposed to go there in the first place. Okay, so what can people do just in case? For the paranoid among us, what, are there things, steps you can take just to make sure this doesn't happen? Yes, there are some group policy settings in Windows using the group policy system in your domain. Or you can to use group policy locally using the gpedit command on your computer. Or because these actually, these group policy settings involve registry tweaks We've explained how you can do the registry tweaks. There are several settings for Outlook that, according to Microsoft's help file anyway, are supposed to turn off some of these behaviors. There's one option that says, don't use the auto-discovered domain names. So if you know you don't need that, then it's not supposed to use auto-discover.anything, so it won't go up and up and up and up and eventually try domain outside. You can also do things, by the way, like say, Never fall back on HTTP if HTTPS doesn't work, mm -hmm. which is a good way of stopping this data leaking out or, or even flying around your own network unencrypted by mistake and a bunch of other stuff that you can set as well that minimizes the extent to which Outlook tries to help you help yourself. We've documented those in the article, how you can set them either using the registry or using the group policy editor. The other thing you could do if you were worried and you have a web firewall, let's say your, your own domain is something, something, something dot com, then you could consider putting a block in your web firewall, for example, for autodiscover.com. Somebody told me it had something to do with automotive parts, autodiscover, right? A search site for automotive parts. <laughs> okay. Now, yeah. it seems, at least when I was looking into this, that uh, <laughs> its own ISP was going, no, 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 this is a phishing site. It seemed that someone figured this was too good an opportunity, and I'm guessing tried to hack it so that it could harvest data. And in fact, uh, Sophos products will block it by default as a potential source of malware or other dubiousness. Having said that, Doug, I need to mention that I couldn't get the group policy, don't use the autodiscover dot whatever domains. I could not get that to work. In my tests, whatever setting I used, it still tried at least autodiscover.myowndomainname. However, the flip side of that is that I couldn't get Outlook to try any autodiscover domain except one that would obviously and any way belong to me. So in my tests with the latest version of Outlook, couldn't get the fix to work, but I couldn't get the bug to work either. So I kind of figured I ended up on an even keel. Yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, the fact remains that they did get all these inadvertent exfiltrations of passwords that they did not really ask for and that users and maybe even sysadmins probably didn't realize were happening. So if you're really worried, you could always put a network sniffer on your network, try setting up some outlooks in and around your company and see what domains it tries to visit and see just how hard your version of Outlook tries on your network. And that will give you an idea of what mitigations you may wish to put in place. All right. We'll keep an eye on that. It's called How Outlook Auto-Discover Could Leak Your Passwords and How to Stop It on NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. It's time for This Week in Tech History. This week, on September 30th, 1980, representatives from Digital Equipment Corporation, Intel and Xerox, published a little paper called The Ethernet, a Local Area Network, Data Link Layer, and Physical Layer Specifications. 
Version 1 of the Ethernet standard, in other words. Did that go anywhere? I don't know if it did, but I was going to say... There uh, any, did, it, did it cause any kind of major change to our society as we know it? Or was it one of those flash-in-a-pan things? The cause of and solution to all of life's problems. I'm looking at several <laughs> Ethernet cords right now. I like being plugged directly into the router because it's fast. Yeah, and you've got gigabit yeah. when you leave your router. I'd rather have a, a connection to our router that can't outpace what happens thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> How times change, Doug. What were those? What speeds were they talking about then? One meg, two meg? Version one was 10, 10 megabits per second. I do not miss coax. No, sir. When hubs started. And I suppose there are plenty of listeners who have no idea what a hub is. Yes. And to explain, a hub is basically a switch that's broken. Yeah. <laughs> that's failed, that's had its internal state tables overflow or crash to such an extent that it has no choice but to send out every packet on every port because it doesn't know who lives where. And I remember, so back around the turn of the century, I was getting my, um, my A-plus certification to be a computer technician. And um, the network part of the test was, we still had to know the difference between Ethernet and a token ring network and all these kind of things that no one was even using anymore. But oh, because when this golly, came out, I it suppose was at least token, at least e using Ethernet with coax and T pieces and terminators. At least it was better than token ring, Doug. Yeah, because when I was researching this, it was this came out to compete with token ring, and it was like, yeah, holy because geez. hey, that token had to go round and round and round, and if someone left a little hole in their cable and the token fell out when rolling across the floor, that <laughs> simpler times. <laughs> No auto-discover. No, not at all. Which was both a blessing and a curse. Well, speaking of something that's been around for a while, VMware has uh, experienced a bug. The bug is serious, and perhaps refreshingly, VMware didn't really mince words about it, did they? They did not, which is what minded me to write this up on Naked Security, is firstly, it's sort of a public service announcement, because clearly that was justified. Uh, and secondly, I was just pleasantly surprised at the fact that they told it like it was, like you get with regular patch cycles for any major vendor. There were plenty of bugs fixed, 19 different CVE numbered vulnerabilities. But one of them, it turned out it's what's known as a sort of file upload bug. We've spoken about these on the podcast many times when it comes to things like WordPress. You know, where you add a plugin that lets people upload files like images, and then it doesn't check that they have uploaded images, and it doesn't check that they only end up in the image directory and people go, oh, well, I'll upload a program or I'll upload a script and then I'll sit back and wait until some later point at which I know that file is going to get indexed or accessed or used and then my code will run. And that was apparently the nature of the bug. It was some plugin, I believe, that's built into the into vCenter server whereby somebody who had access to the server, so they'd need internet access to it, access over the network, but they wouldn't need to be authenticated. They wouldn't need a password. And they could initiate a file upload and they could leave a file in a place where it would then get run by the vCenter server, which clearly is remote code execution. Very bad. VMware, bless their hearts, actually said in their security advisory, instead of going, we are aware of a report that this may have been exploited. Who can really say? They said, the ramifications of this vulnerability are serious, and it is a matter of time 
likely minutes after the disclosure before working exploits will be publicly available. This needs your attention immediately. Oh, and just in case you're one of those people who figured, oh, I'm scared of the patch, they also published a comprehensive workaround that would let you turn off the buggy parts of your vCenter server in such a way that its primary functionality would continue. There might be a couple of little monitoring bits that didn't work, and then you could turn that off after you've done the patch. If you look at some of the disclosures that we've talked about in the past, you know, maybe they don't have quite the the frankness that this one did. <laughs> and we had a reader comment that said uh, their sysadmin said it was one of the easiest and fastest VMware patches to install. Just sharing for those that are hesitant to patch very early. Indeed. So do it. That was nice feedback to get. But on the very day they're saying, look, don't delay, do it today. We got at least one person coming back saying, hey, the sysadmin said it's a breeze. Great. So let's hope it is for you too. And mm -hmm. in fact, let's hope you've already done it. That is VMware Patch Bulletin warns this needs your immediate attention on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And as the sun slowly sets on yet another episode, it is time for our Oh No. This comes from someone named Ari on Quora. This post is about eight years old, which will make sense soon enough. <laughs> There's no coax in it, is there? No, but uh, the next best thing. And I uh, hit me, Doug. I will need to clean up the language a little bit. This is a family friendly podcast after all, but. Uh, so Ari is a, working in tech support. He answers the phone saying, this is Ari, how can I help you? And a foul-mouthed older lady of British uh, ilk says, my son's computer... Ilk? Is, <laughs> is, that, ilk. is, is ilk negative? Um, she says, my son's computer this is, is... This is wrong on so many levels. <laughs> you know, old woman, British ilk, yeah. foul-mouthed. Maybe her... we just have a different way of speaking. Yeah. I'm just... And we have words that are not so rude here that are quite rude there and vice versa yeah. i won't mention them as you say it's a family friendly podcast yes okay she was she was gobbing off was she she's saying my son's computer is just um let's say i'll say making me frustrated so what she actually said she said he's traveling oh, so this is swearing this is swearing in she's british all, and she's american first English. line out of the gate she, this computer is so she's of british ilk and she's angry yep He's traveling, so he can't help me. Can you help me? And Ari says, sure. Have you started the computer? She says, yes. Ari says, I will need to see the configuration. Can you do a left click on the start button in the bottom left of your screen with the mouse? And the lady says, that arrow thing is acting like a, or let's say a real rascal, not moving. The cursor's not moving. The right clicks seem to show me some. And Ari says that he is laughing, but he's losing patience also. He says, could you please lift the mouse and check that the ball is moving freely and there is no dirt? Remember, this is eight years ago. And the lady says, aha, now I know where that ball came from. My cat's been playing with it since yesterday. <laughs> so the cat somehow extracted the ball from the mouse and was playing with the ball. And she's thinking, where did that cat get the, where did that ball come from? But he seemed, the cat seems to be enjoying itself. But now my mouse doesn't work. The only thing that could make that story better and worse at the same time is if the cat had accidentally swallowed the ball uh -huh. and there was a, how can I put it, a, <laughs> a buffer period <laughs> yep. during which she had to wait to recover it. Those were also not simpler times of trying to figure out why that ball wasn't working. Remember how, how dodgy optical mice were when they first came out? I was just going to say it actually got more complicated when the optical mice came out and didn't work on anything except a very dark surface or a magazine. And once mm -hmm. you'd learned your lesson about 
glass-topped desks. Because let's be honest, who really has a glass-topped desk? Oh, I used to have one. It was awful. I was like, why did I buy this thing? Because it was right when the optical mice came out. Actually, what am I talking about? I have a, I'm looking at a glass-top desk right now. I have a glass-top desk. I hate it. And your mouse works with it nicely, does it? I have a giant mouse pad that is about four feet wide by two feet tall, and uh, my keyboard's on it. All my stuff is on it. It's like a desk pad. Well, we got a lot of good work done here today. We did a lot of reminiscing, a lot of nostalgia. Which Some of it was angst rather than nostalgia. Well, that's true, but you can't have one without the other. No, maybe not. If you have an oh-no that you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. And for Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.